This is Dr. Laura Flora Shaw, and this is Science Montessori and Parenting. So I'm really excited about today's episode. I had a conversation with Dr. Jan McVerish, and she is a researcher and lecturer at the Center for Parenting Culture Studies at the University of Kent in the UK. Dr. McVerish and I discuss her latest book, Neuroparenting, which examines the expert invasion of family life. But before we get into the conversation, I just want to mention a couple of things. First, thank you again to all my subscribers. Without your support, this podcast and much of my other work would not be happening. So thank you so much. And if you're not a subscriber and you're listening to this podcast, you might want to consider becoming a subscriber. You can just go to www.whitepaperpress.us to find out more. I also want to remind school subscribers that summer is the perfect time to send white papers out via email to your parent community. Not only will you be giving them information that they can use, but it keeps them connected to the school. Also, I wanted to mention a project that I am working on currently. It's a project of short videos called Science Segments. The first videos are currently in production. And they're going to give you information about development, about the brain, but not so that you can become a neuroparent, but just more so that you can have correct information since a lot of what we read in the media is very hyperbolic and is not accurate. So my goal is to give you accurate information so you as a parent can come to your own conclusions about things. And if you're an educator and interested in neuroscience, These science segments will also be for you, because not only will they discuss the science, they'll also talk about the implications for the classroom. Now, these videos will be paywalled because, you know, I don't have a trust fund, but the first video will be posted for free at the end of the summer in our Science Montessori and Parenting Facebook group. So if you're not yet a member of this group, look us up. Okay, so enough of the preamble. We're just going to get right into it. We're going to talk about neural parenting with Dr. Jan McFarish. Thank you so much for doing this. No I'm problem. really excited to, to have you here. I really enjoyed the book. So why don't you go ahead and we'll start by you introducing yourself so you can let our listeners know what you want them to know about yourself. So uh, my name is Jan McFarish. I am a researcher in the family, I would say, a sociologist of the family. And I have looked at all kinds of subjects of the modern family from singleness, particularly sort of female single living, teenage pregnancy, reproductive technology, and then most recently, the way in which child rearing is understood through the incorporation of neuroscience, which comes out of a long period of work I did with colleagues at the University of Kent, looking at this thing that we've called parenting culture which is the kind of particular conditions in which contemporary child rearing is taking place Mm -hmm. and why it is that the idea of this thing called parenting has really taken such a hold over the way we understand the task of raising children. Right. So I want to point out that we actually, we actually connected four years ago because I wrote an Mm. article in the Huffington Post called Stop Using Neuroscience to Scare Parents. Yes. Yes. Linked to one of your studies so that allowed us to connect. I think we then connected on, on Twitter, but I then bought parenting cultures a couple of weeks after that and devoured that. So I'll put a link up in the right. show 
notes for people because I think it's a really great Great. collection of work and uh, have basically been following your work since then. So was really excited actually about neuroparenting when it Mm -hmm. came out and could not wait for it to be available in the US so I could purchase it here. (laughs) So I really want to focus particularly on this book because it's it's a slim volume, but there's a lot in it. And I mm-hmm. think it's a lot of really important points that aren't normally discussed and mm-hmm. they really should be, particularly amongst parents, not just amongst academics, mm-hmm. but this information really needs to get out to parents. What is neuroparenting? How would you define that? Well, I would say that neuroparenting is a particular aspect of our contemporary parenting culture. It's almost like the most condensed or intensified aspect of the way in which the relationship between parent and child is now being understood uh, or promoted in some ways or or reinterpreted. And what the neuro in neuroparenting connotes is that for a lot of experts and for government policy advisors and for some parents to a certain extent, the task of raising children and of loving children has become reinterpreted as a task in which the main aim is to nurture the infant brain and to secure optimal or normal brain development. This came out of a realisation that the brain was being talked about more and more, particularly in policy circles, actually, in Britain. There's slightly less of the commercial neuroparenting culture than you, might, than you might see in the US, where there's all these products and baby Einstein videos and all this kind of thing, which everybody's familiar with over here. But I think it was really when social policy started to really use neuroparenting or talk about neuroparenting. It became something that was evident within British family policy. Mm-hmm. So uh, the study that on which I based the book was a study of policy documents produced from the late 1990s onwards. Uh, and we traced the entry into UK family policy documents. So the kind of places in which family policy is just in policy circles and the places where it's transmitted to the general public. It, you could trace the entrance of the neuro or the brain of brain talk into family policy in about the early sort of 2000s it starts to um, get something of a hold usually borrowed from the US so it's kind of US authors and research that's being cited and then it really kicked off in about 2007 over here with a very explicit promotion of neuroparenting as a solution to social problems and that it grabbed a lot of people's attention but particularly for us at the University of Kent it was something that we really thought wow this is is quite extraordinary that the brain could be promoted in this way as a way of talking to parents about being a good parent and that's what we set out to try to understand you know what is it that that does and why is it that it might have particularly taken hold at that time but also looking at the antecedents of it and looking at who is it that's being sort of listened to here who are these experts that have been listened to um, trying to trace some of the movements from the US in particular to the UK policy context but also really trying to understand well, how might this be read how might this be heard and why is it that this is what's being said now 
anything that looks like it's new in the way that babies are understood and the way in which the parental task is understood, it was going to spark our interest. But the brain looked like it was particularly significant, partly because in other areas of um, academia and of life, the brain was also being talked up uh, as being a kind of something that had been unlocked somehow that we now know and therefore we should apply brain science to the study of art we should apply brain science to the study of political um political behavior for example so it was obviously part of something bigger as well right leadership marketing all kinds of mm -hmm. things right yeah, yeah. so it, yeah. i find it interesting that the brain information basically the neuroscience information was coming from the US, but mm -hmm. it wasn't coming from people who were actually neuroscientists. I mean, a lot of this work came from people who were synthesizing this research. That was what's so interesting, because I was very wary about trying to engage with this research, because I thought, well, I'm not a scientist. How can I possibly engage with this kind of evidence? But then as soon as I started looking at it, I thought, well, it's really not science. It's what we would probably call claims making. So there's right. statements which float free from science or any kind of scientific justification and in some ways are really quite anti-scientific in the way in which they're asserted as eternal truths and universal truths as opposed to scientific claims which would be you know time-specific discoveries for example which would there's always the possibility in science of these things being overturned right um, whereas the way in which these states statements were being made was that we now know we now know once and for all that babies' brains need this or that when parents do that, they cause this problem in babies' brains. So there was the degree of certainty, I suppose, was the thing that really um, rang the alarm bells, actually. <laughs> you know, knowing a little bit about what the scientific method is supposed to be and knowing what actual scientists are like, I did think, well, this doesn't sound like science. And yet all the vocabulary looks like a scientific vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And as you say... Well, it already been pointed out, there's a very, very good book by um, John Brewer, a US uh, academic, who wrote a book called, um, just looking on the, the myth of the first three years, looking at my bookshelves. And he'd already pointed out, uh, by looking at the origins of this kind of thinking in the US policy context, that this was promoted by particular policy advocates rather than scientists themselves. There are, there are people who are involved in brain scientists, in brain science, who have got on the bandwagon, but it's primarily child psychologists. It's advocates who are actually arguing often for more resources for families and for children, but not, I wouldn't say that the biggest criticism of it is that people are unqualified and that's the problem. It's more that when people who are not scientists start uh, talking about the brain, you have to ask why. And the point John Brewer made that very early on, he went, he was writing about the Clinton conference on the brain in the late, 90, uh, late 80s. And the point that he made there was that there was one neuroscientist there at a conference of hundreds of people at the White House, which was seen as a kind of big launch of this new way of thinking. And yet there was one neuroscientist there and they were relatively equivocal and <laughs> a little bit ambivalent about what they'd witnessed at the conference. So, uh, you know, again, you, it just was more and more intriguing really, mm -hmm. as to why this, why this particular version of child rearing at this point in time. The Harvard Center on the Developing Child mm -hmm. had a lot to do with how this message was crafted. 
what a parent's influence, you know, what their influence is on the development of the baby's brain. How did that get over to the UK? Because I do find it interesting how reading what's happening over there in terms of policy, it's really had a huge impact. Yeah. What seemed to happen was that certain key influences did get a hearing in the U- in the UK policy context. They'd already won a hearing in the US policy context by quite explicitly, or very explicitly, in the case of Jack Shonkoff and the Harvard Centre for the Developing Child, they had worked with a, a kind of communications company to craft a message about the early years being the most important period of a child's of a person's life, and had crafted a message using very particular keywords like critical periods and kind of windows of opportunity and the idea that parents are the architects of their bra- of their children's brains and that the brain is something that could be described in terms of architecture. Uh, and those kind of metaphors were very um, crafted over quite a long period of time and with the particular purpose of getting a policy hearing for policies that would target the early years of children's lives um, in various different kinds of educational and family intervention projects. But what the Harvard Centre and Jack Shonkoff in particular then also did was they also then toured other nations. So they came, they went to New Zealand and Australia, Canada first, I think, and the UK. And, And they were invited. I mean, they were invited into policy circles to address politicians and policy advisors in the UK and elsewhere. But also they would get invited to centres of research in those other places outside the US. And because it sounded so new and really quite sexy, (laughs) I think it it gained a hearing as a simple solution and a simple explanation for very, very entrenched social problems where there was a degree of stasis in the sense of how on earth these could be addressed. So things like uh, criminality, unemployment, uh, mental health problems, uh, addictions, these problems that we've had for, you know, ever, uh, but certainly that in policy terms have been in the attention and the sights of policymakers since the 19th century. Neuroscience and the kind of new knowledge about the brain, as it was talked about, seemed to offer some kind of uh, new options for dealing with those kinds of very entrenched problems, which everybody would want to deal with. So all of those problems are problems that we would want to try and resolve. But what uh, Jack Shonkoff did, and various other people, so Bruce Perry is another one who uh, talks about kind of trauma uh, and the significance of the early years and the trauma experienced by children and talks about the brain. Um, And he toured. He went to Australia, he went to New Zealand, he came to Britain, he addressed policymakers here uh, and was on Oprah. And, you know, it's, there's something about those individuals who can be very powerful because they're very charismatic. They have scientific authority and they offer a, a very, quite a very emotive solution. So they often presented their work in very anecdotal and emotive terms, descriptions of children. So the Bruce Perry classic scenario is of the, the patient who was raised as a dog a child who was treated so badly that they were raised essentially as a dog might be and it's very interesting those kinds of stories that obviously capture our imagination they lend themselves beautifully to the talk show circuit but what was I suppose what was kind of interesting was that the, the idea that that would also capture policymakers because policymakers you tend to think as being a bit more dry and not really prone to the kind of Oprah style argument making and I think was that was kind of interesting in the uh, 2000s was that policy the policy arena seemed to be quite open to these highly emotive stories 
but at a time when supposedly policy making was supposed to be evidence-based mm -hmm. so we had this context in the, in the uk where all policy across all domains was supposed to be evidence-based policy which sounds very rational and very cold um, and it lends itself to things like randomized controlled trials and that nothing can be commissioned unless it's proven to work but actually the way that actually played out was the opposite of you know, anything scientific really and often it's turned into the being loudest voices or the most emotive voices or that have gained a policy hearing so there's a really interesting process the role that these kinds of arguments have played at different levels of government in persuading people in regional government and local government to adopt certain programs of intervention many of which have been bought in sort of wholesale as a package from u.s purveyors of intervention projects so there's a kind of marketplace there for government interventions which has been internationalized as well and again that's a very curious thing which has worked out across the anglo-american world so far because of the language i think it makes it possible and certain kind of lots of cultural similarities that make it work what's really interesting now is trying to see the extent to which these also translate into the european the non-English speaking European context. I've had a lot of interest in the last year or so from other European countries where they're saying, oh God, I don't think this is happening here, but it's interesting. We can kind of see what it might be doing, what neuroparenting, we understand what it is and we understand why it would work or, or why it would have a great deal of purchase in the contemporary period, but we don't seem to be seeing it in Finland or France. But actually what's happening, seems to be happening is that there's a reworking in different kind of policy contexts and it takes hold more in some places than others. That is interesting. And I think, you know, it's listening to you. I think it's what's also, I have found difficult is that people will say to me, but this is coming from the Harvard center on the developing child. It's coming from Harvard. Mm -hmm. So it's automatically assumed that these messages should absolutely be 100%. Mm -hmm. trusted. So you have the emotive fact, but then you have the quote-unquote authority of an Ivy League mm -hmm. university. Yeah. And when you tell people, well, it's not really quite like that. <laughs> it's very confusing. Let's talk about some of the unintended consequences, because I think the intention is good. They're trying to help children, trying to raise awareness for early childhood education, these sorts of things. But then they end up presenting this very sort of fixed message of the brain that somehow it's set really early on yeah um, and in fact one of my favorite quotes here you talk about the vulnerability trope and you say in the book the encouraging and reassuring discovery of human brain plasticity is therefore interpreted as a source of vulnerability not resilience so that's always been my question as i've been watching this and reading this even before coming across your work i always thought well when is the brain set we have plasticity, so why would it be set? And how can we present that message? But that's a really powerful message, and there are unintended consequences from that. So can we talk about some yeah. of those? Yeah, well, it is really fascinating. And, and that was one of the things that I found really curious, which was when you actually look at the, the research that has been done into the brain, then it is this phenomenon of plasticity, which is the, fi the key finding, which is that... I suppose the, the most recent development in thinking about the brain in the late 20th century and onwards was that it, there was a confirmation that there, there are environmental influences on the, the brain and that the brain is sort of infinitely complex and uh, it's, 
you know, the, the extraordinary ways in which human the human brain is just so geared towards other human interactions and it is quite extraordinary and it's a beautiful beautiful thing and it's sort of but it kind of you can take that to confirm many of the things that we already know and do which is you know we when we raise babies we don't lock them in a cupboard right you know, when we raise babies we have always talked to them generally yeah. speaking or we have always sung to them and rocked them and done all these things with children even if we don't do it at a certain stage we do it later on and you know, that and what this what happens when the brain comes in and in the way in which the brain has been brought in is in a very different kind of way which is to rather than have a hopeful message it has been this deeply fatalistic message about uh, a window shutting so the key metaphor i would say of, of neuroparenting is the idea of critical periods and even in neuroscience there was a move away from the use of this term critical periods which was about very specific mechanisms of development and scientists themselves decided that critical periods was just too deterministic and too closed and so they started to talk about sensitive periods during which very particular mechanisms of, of brain development were dependent on certain environmental factors, but that these were very, very specific aspects of development. So vision, for example, or audio, uh, audio development. Exactly. Um, but that, that wasn't something that applied across you know, animal development or human development. But what was interesting was that in the neuroparenting as it exists in the cultural and political domain, critical periods are stuck around and I think critical then takes on this other meaning which is not the scientific meaning which it originally meant which is that it kind of was vital that it happened at that time that it was time specific critical comes to mean a sort of now or never mm -hmm. aspect uh, a, a very general net metaphor to which actually I think served to it, it knitted together or expressed a uh, a sort of political development in political thinking where there was a presumption that old interventions didn't work so the old interventions of the state happened too late they might happen too little but the idea that they happened too late became really to have quite a strong hold um, on the on the popular imagination but also in policy circles so there's a sort of search for novelty there in the policy domain i would say and the promise that as long as you intervened earlier that was we could almost do the same thing but just do it earlier right and of course that knits together with an individual parental aspiration to bring your child on which is is a late 20th century thing really which is that idea of it's a very competitive idea of your child in the world and if some if the child does something sooner than other children that must be a good thing and we, we used to call it prococity doing things earlier it was seen as a precocious thing to do it wasn't yes. seen as a good thing necessarily for a baby to be dancing like a 16 year old you know in other respects we don't see that as a as a good trait in a child um people did used to worry about children that talk too early or read too early whereas now we have this idea that you know if they're our, our sort of time scales have just really changed where we're now expecting children to be read to in utero <laughs> Yes, it was just you know quite an extraordinary thing, really. And there's the yeah. idea that you can't do it too early. And if we could, if we could read them pre-utero, I suspect that some people would be wanting to do that. You know, if there was a right. way of doing that. But the um, so there's that sense, there's that, and it's an incredibly 
it, even though it looks like it's quite optimistic because it looks like it's about you know loving your child more and doing more with your child and stimulating your your child more and just getting more out of the parent child interaction and to an extent that's that's true but the corollary of that is that if you don't do that or you realize too late that you ought to have already done it that's it the window has shut and you've left it too late and of course you'll never know whether you did because when your child is seven and they've only just been reading for two years you can always think well if i had started when they were in utero would they be a better reader now right and especially when you've got any problems in your child i think the thing where you you read history backwards and locate blame continually at your own feet i think is a really really unhelpful unintended consequence of of neuroparenting the, you know the idea of optimal parenting or yeah. uh, optimal development um you know first of all what exactly does that mean who are you comparing your child to? Like, what do you, what, what does that mean? It, it reminds me of a parent who came to me and said, um, I'm really concerned. So I, I used to run a school, a Montessori mm -hmm. school. And he said, I'm really concerned. My daughter hasn't put in her 10,000 hours of math yet. Mm -hmm. We say these things like, well, 10,000 hours, then you become the expert. Or we talk about optimal parenting. Yeah. And then that becomes the thing that we strive for, right? Because we want to do, we want to do what's right for our children. Mm -hmm. But all it does is put pressure and anxiety on everybody involved. And it's based on something that, well, we know that the whole 10,000 hours thing isn't even really what it claims to be or what yeah. Malcolm yeah. Gladwell claimed it to be. Yeah. But yeah, it really, it puts this pressure, this anxiety, not only on the parent, but on the child as well. Parenting itself has changed a lot, just even I think in the last 35, 40 years. You, t I, you know, you talk about positive discipline in your in your book. I'm actually trained as you know a positive discipline trainer because we this when I was running the school. But I remember talking to the trainer, and she said that there was a huge shift. It used to be that they used to just tell parents, you know, just stop hitting your kids, and now the message is you have to tell your children no mm -hmm. because the parents are so anxious that they feel like if they say no to their children or upset their children in any way, that somehow that's releasing stress and cortisol into their brain and that's going to damage them and then they're going to be traumatized for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So we have these terms now like trauma, that's thrown around like, you know, I mean, basically I, I feel, I, I honestly feel like we're at a point where we could say everyone has experienced trauma. Yeah in some way or another. The idea of toxic stress, these types of terms, parents will think, well, if I sleep train my baby and let my baby cry, then I'm introducing my child to toxic stress and that's going to ruin their brains. But no one's asking, well, where's the line? Mm. You know, where's the line in these things? How do we know? Um, but these terms are being used, I, I feel like, in a kind of a willy-nilly way. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, I've talked about it in terms of losing sight of normal, so that we've pathologized so many as normal aspects of um, children's lives that we don't even, we don't even know what's normal and, and we've kind of pathologized past practices. And so there's a very, there's a very strong aspect in parenting culture, which is a kind of war against previous versions of child rearing. And it's sometimes really explicit. So you know, sometimes you'll hear health visitors in the UK say, oh, well, the problem is that their grandma's got a lot of influence there. And grandma thinks it's okay to smoke around the baby or grandma thinks it's okay to put the baby to sleep on their 
front or their side. Um, grandma thinks it's okay that the mum would be happier if she could bottle feed. And so you have these, what was pragmatic experience-based knowledge, which is the knowledge that comes from real family situations, is denigrated and replaced with expert-informed knowledge and practice, which unfortunately leaves people very, very vulnerable because that's it's a very unstable form of knowledge. Everybody, everybody can tell you over here that the, that the advice on weaning babies, feeding babies and sleeping has changed, even between having one child and the next. And so co-sleeping was okay, and then it becomes a risk factor. Um, you know, weaning is supposed to be at six months uh, or four months was when it was my first child. And then by the time I had the second one, three years later, it was six months, if not older. Um, it's puree, then it's finger food. It's, you know, it's very unstable. And we know, because we know that changes, we know it will also change in the future. Because these things have a degree of authority, they're quite difficult to resist because their authority is based on saying that the other practices are risky. And if they're risky, that means that the people who do them are bad parents because every right. parent ought to be a safe parent at the bottom line. And, you know, similarly, you have unsafe grandparents who feed their grandchildren custard or chocolate or grapes not cut up and and so you introduce this these risk scenarios into really really ordinary everyday parts of human life which are you know deciding how you're going to feed your baby when you're going to feed your baby what you're going to feed your baby which are just everyday decisions you're making with a baby you're making eight times a day <laughs> not even three times a day like when you're an adult and yet each one of those decision points becomes fraught with anxiety about uh we, we all you've got these kind of competing voices going on which is your mum's voice your peer group's voice which will have some experience in it and some people who are reading primarily reading books and then you'll have your health visitor, you might have your doctor, you may be contradicting your health visitor. You may then have also read books and gone on websites and read, read newspaper articles. And the range of views, which are highly dramatised, uh, makes it very difficult just to kind of do what feels right. And I think that there's a, there's a, a, a breaching of that sort of continuity, which is really quite important when we raise children yeah. from past to present and future. Uh, and that's that to me is is one of the most concerning things about it because I think it leaves people in a very very vulnerable state where they're relatively isolated. And I think it genuinely undermines relationships for some people where they don't really want their mother-in-law to look after the child because they think that well she is prone to be she thinks babies should try chocolate at the age of six months or that babies should be left to cry for five minutes in order to get them to sleep. You know those kinds of scenarios where the translation of that in parenting culture terms as it's now constructed around risk is that that person doesn't care enough. See, that's a really important point is that it turns into you don't care enough or you don't love this child enough. Yeah. And so then it becomes a situation of moral judgment. And I feel like that's something, particularly when you're working in early childhood education, even in... Um, you know, K to 12, even when I was doing therapy in a, the public school district, I would still hear teachers complain about parents that they're just doing it all wrong. And that's why their kids are X, Y, Z, not, you know, mm -hmm. compliant in school and everything else, you know, and everything gets sort of blamed on the parent and they're morally judged as, as if, you know, the parent doesn't love their child enough, mm -hmm. you know, so mm -hmm. then they're not 
they're, they as a parent, because they don't love their child enough, they're not doing enough for their children. Everything is situational and contextual. And when we have these sort of blanket ideas and parenting experts make these blanket prescriptions, mm. context is not taken into consideration at all. When you tell parents that your child is never acting out to get attention, mm-hmm. really? Never? Mm. Nobody ever acts out to get attention? I know adults who act out to get attention. Yeah. So I think it really, it so truly disempowers parents because it takes away their ability, uh, it takes away their instincts in a way, you know, and they're learning that they go through with their child, right? Or with their children. So they can figure out, well, in this context, I know she's okay. In this context, I know she's genuinely upset and we need to, to coach her through this or help her or provide comfort or whatever. But it, it takes all of that, all of the learning that the parent goes through with their own children within their particular context of their culture, their family and everything. It just, none of that matters in these yeah. blanket parenting yeah. prescriptions. Yeah. And I think the thing about family life is it is the most specific area of our lives. The very fact that it's, that we are only there as individuals is the intimacy of it. That's so it's unlike any other domain of life because workplaces have standardization processes and, you know, other areas of life have their rules, which, kind of standardize things but the family it does rely on moral norms to an extent but the way they actually are worked out in a family context is so specific yeah Uh, and we all know that you know what goes on behind closed doors will be very very different to the way a family is in public and I suppose um yeah one of the things that's really quite destructive about this the heightened moral judgment of uh, contemporary parenting culture is that I think that parents do um, it's not like all instincts are overridden and it's not like every parent becomes a neuro parent they really don't because people are not like that and it is unlivable to do that I mean there are the other person and they'll be the one that all the other parents laugh about as it happens mm-hmm. you know the ultimate mum who's they'll probably feel a bit sorry for the mum who really thinks that she has to stimulate the child's brain all the time and most people don't talk in terms of their baby's brains. But I think they introduce the nagging doubt all the time and a sort of external measure to what you're doing in a very, in a very private context. Um, and so it introduces the possibility of doubt there. So even if what you've done with your baby feels perfectly right at the time, you know, the way you've played with your baby or the fact that you put them to bed and they cried for a bit, but then they went to sleep, to you that might that might feel absolutely right and you've kind of you know you've you've used your judgment there and your knowledge of your child and also what you need what you yes need, it isn't all about children that's the thing about family life it isn't all about babies and children's needs it's about far more than that it's all the other things that we've got going on in our lives as adults but the problem with parenting as it's become understood and constructed and talked about and neuroparenting in particular is that it it expands that kind of external voice if you like and it it fills up it does knock out of the way other things because it just will um you can't it can't just coexist because it always trumps other kinds of knowledge because it has that sort of scientific legitimacy to it uh, and truth claims that are said to be universal and eternal i think that's quite hard for judgment 
individual judgment to hold up against those and I think it does because you know all parents especially I think new parents first-time parents to young babies are much more susceptible to this stuff than anybody yeah. else and actually when you know, everybody jokes when they have a third child the ch third child is essentially neglected right yeah. <laughs> and, uh, every parent who has a second child thinks oh we thought we made our first child like this and yeah. now this other one comes along and they're totally different and then you start to think okay so maybe we weren't actually responsible with our brilliant parenting for the way the first one turned out so you know there's something about family life that's brilliantly messy and it forces you to you know to complicate things um which is why we do it i suppose because it's actually it is really it can be really good fun you know and it's very enriching but um it's rare to see people with a larger family following these kinds of diktats well I think certainly in the UK I mean not that you see many people following them anyway but I think new parents are particularly susceptible to that because they haven't really got a lot else to go on and yeah. they don't know the child yet because the child not, there's not a lot to the child and when you've got a new baby there's not much to it really so you're trying to interpret behaviors that are really quite mysterious <laughs> because right. the child is not reasonable and they're not even necessarily following a pattern at that stage so you have to impose meaning on it yeah and the problem with neuroparenting is with its focus on the early years and even on pregnancy it, Im it imbues with meaning things that are just really very mysterious aspects of yeah. human beings no, we don't know why that baby cries and that baby doesn't cry. Why does that baby love being held over the knee and their stomach kind of quite vigorously massaged and the other baby hates it? Why does one why is one really hot and one really cold? You know, right. all of those things that there is no explanation. It's just human variety. The problem is that all these everything that's being said about parenting and particularly the caring the care of babies, which is where so much of parenting culture is directed, is that it's possible to say anything really because babies aren't going to prove you wrong. They can't talk back, uh, and they they just invite the imposition of meaning because they're sort of there's not a lot to say really, is there? Right. I mean, they do sleep and poop and cry and then are beautiful and lovely and some of them cry a lot less than others and they're easier for that and all of this but the there's not much else to say but obviously as they start to develop they become incredibly fascinating but mainly to their parents right. <laughs> but um and, you know the, the, the only thing i see the, the only positive i suppose i i can see in neuroparenting and in that if there is new knowledge about child development is I kind of, I do sort of think it can make raising children much more interesting as well as more fractious and uh, making you more insecure. But this, I, I kind of suspect, so when I looked back at the history of the way in which babies were talked about, there was a really interesting article. I think it was by uh, Terry Brazelton in the eighties. And he talked about child psychology and sort of new knowledge in child psychology. And I had a real sense that he spoke explicitly about more and more women going out to work. Uh, and yet he was talking about how brilliantly fascinating babies are. And if you, you know, he was pointing out things about in very early infant development, that we might not have spotted that actually are, you know, curious human things like grip reflexes and, you know, eye contact and, you know, the mirroring of um, behavior and that kind of thing, you know, which is it, it, when you know about that stuff, it's, it's good fun. But the, um, but I did. I had the feeling that he was trying to sell motherhood back to mothers who actually were more inclined to be in the workplace as this almost semi-professional task. 
and something that had status to it because there was specialist knowledge involved and that required high, highly attentive skill-based actions. And I thought, oh God, it is like he's marketing motherhood to mothers yeah. uh, because he didn't think women should be in the workplace. He thought they should be at home. I thought, God, that is a really curious thing where you sort of semi-professionalise it in order to, in a way, make a moral argument or an argument against social forces. But you do it by developing a child into this much more fascinating object yeah. that can become a project for you as an ambitious one, which Sharon Hayes talks about brilliantly in um, culture, uh, the Cultural Contradictions of Motherhood, where she right. talks about, you know, a kind of new generation of women who have been in the workplace and often quite high powered workplaces um, then becoming mothers and sort of applying the ambitions and the and the sort of skill-based knowledge to child rearing in a way that with goals and targets and and that there's this kind of interaction between their interpretation of what motherhood requires and a quite a conservative impulse out there to try to make sure that the social changes of women going into the workplace don't don't destroy the family really and don't kind of completely undermine maternal responsibility to children attachment parenting has done a great job yeah. at that so I, I read those books the sears books which i thought were fear-based but i kept thinking the whole time so is Dr. Sears himself, is he doing this attachment parenting? Because he's writing all these books and has quite a busy pediatric practice. So who's doing all of this wearing of the children? And they had he, his own, he and his wife had uh, maybe six or eight children or something. They had a lot of kids, I think. So I thought, wow, that's a, who, who's doing all of this? <laughs> all of this work. I, I suspect that it's actually not Dr. Sears himself is, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but it, it really, it makes it so that mom has to stay at home and do all of these mm -hmm. things. Or if she doesn't, when she is at work, she has to apply a very large part of her mind and thinking to the child. So she can never fully hand over. And then when she's not at work, she has to, she feels compelled to really compensate for the time spent away by um, you know, it's difficult because you know I, I don't. I do think young children need very close, intimate relationships with right. with their parents, and in our current circumstances. But I don't think that's necessarily contradicted by going to work. But it, you know, obviously, for lots of parents, they they get to do far less with their children than they would really like to do because of the obligations of work and the need to earn a living. But the problem is, is that all the solutions to the tension of the contemporary family where there's, you know, there is almost too much for us to do. The burden in, becomes entirely individualized to the individual parent and family rather than there being a discussion about childcare as something that's a social good that's needed by our children in general, rather than me as a parent needing it so that I can fulfill my ambitions to go to work. We need childcare for both things, for adults and for children. Well, and I think too, what it does is that, you know, it doesn't take into consideration different types of families. So mm -hmm. you will have single parent families. So it's not possible for mom to stay at home because she has to go to work or dual income families that cannot survive without both incomes. They just can't. Or, you, or you'll hear families say, well, we make sacrifices. Well, I'm sure you are making sacrifices, but it's still a privilege that you're even able 
to make those sacrifices because there are many people who can't. But like you said, it gets away from the larger discussion of what a society need. And I think that's also what's happening just in general is one of these unintended consequences is it's like, well, we're going to fix all of our societal problems by fixing parenting. Yeah. And then that just basically alleviates policymakers from having to do anything about things like, you know, poverty, yeah. uh, things of that sort, or childcare or, or whatever, right? It's mm-hmm. just now it's, if, if we just, if we have better parenting, if we have better attachment, mm-hmm. there was a report that was released, I think it was, um, it was in the last few years called Baby Bonds some researchers at Columbia University, but I mean, they were basically saying like, if we, if we can improve the attachment, uh, mother's attachment to their children, we will make children more resilient to poverty. Uh, Okay. Okay. When are we going to do something about actual poverty? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, I think it also, so the uh, attachment is such a curious, ubiquitous term now. I mean, it's everywhere. And, um, because it doesn't really mean anything. I mean, I know. there's the very specific, disputable psychological um, aspect of it, but it's it's leached out from that so widely. It becomes it stands for love and care, but it promises to explain love and care to us in scientized terms, which of course you can't because you know we don't love people in one way. We love them in all kinds of ways. But it promises a particular version, a rule about what love and care means. And, and so there is this incredible conformity that comes into being that promotes rule-based behaviour. You know, so if you're into attachment parenting, you you accept the rule that the child must be physically close to you at all times, that you must, you know, co-sleep, that you must breastfeed. And these are these are rules. And there's something really dehumanising about that. And it's also... It's socially authoritarian because, you know, obviously there is still huge diversity and uh, variety in the way in which children are raised, not just across economic boundaries, but just in terms of just cultural differences and just family differences. And I think that conformity can become policed in a really worrying way when social services, for example, you know, make, make judgments about what is required. But I think it's it's also... It's dehumanising because it, it distances parent from child. So increasingly on the sort of mums, anonymous mums forum that I look at in the UK called Mumsnet, which has got thousands and thousands of women on it, and it's all anonymous. So although it's not you know, a factual representation of what's going on and there's particular people that are more drawn to it than others, I have noticed in the last few years just increasing number of, of new mothers expressing disappointment in their child and their baby. And when I've done all this... Why is it? Why don't they like me? They don't seem to like me. Well, they don't seem. You know, I've done all this. I've taken them to classes and I've breastfed them and I've kind of made these sacrifices, but they they're still not speaking, or they don't seem to catch my eye. And of course, there's the great fear of autism, which is hanging over every parent nowadays. But there's also this fear, incredible fear, which looks like it's all sort of self-flagellating. What have I done or what have I not done? But actually, at a certain point, it does transfer to the child and the child can become a disappointment, which I think that's, to me, that's, that's just so awful because like, the rest of the world can be disappointed in your child, but you must not be. I mean, that is the kind of pretty basic parental, if you want to talk about bonds, that's such an important bond of, of unconditional love because the parent has to understand and accept that child for everything that they are. And that's a pretty important moral 
underpinning for the parent-child relationship because nobody else is going to love your child like you are it right. just doesn't happen even when children are removed and uh from their families and they're put in state care you know nobody can love them like a parent can even a rubbish parent probably loves their child more than anybody else can so that idea of inserting a sort of distance between parent and child i just find really really worrying and i think it is so destructive of um of the pleasures of a family life and the, and the sort of contentment that can uh, you know come through it not to say that there's not struggles involved but the richness of a family relationship is the thing that gets you through the really tough things so when you have a child who's sick or when you have a child that is starting to show evidence of some kind of disabilities you really need to be rooting for that child as and you need to be the one person who's most on their side and so the idea that you would be disappointed in them or have the sense that you were culpable for their hearing problems or things like that you know i just find really really uh, just a dreadful dreadful development that it leaves children and parents you know separate from one another in a way that it leaves children stranded really um, well and it's yeah in the end it's so disrespectful of the children because it doesn't give um there's nothing in any of this discourse that really talks about the children themselves and their sense of agency and kind of who they are as as individuals it's all about the parents and what the parents do to the children but there's much more of a dynamic situation and relationship and interaction that's going on you know the child has their own sense of self as their own person has their own neurology and uh, we it, it, so it's it's almost as if it it's acting as if the children are are, are blank slates and and they're not yeah but kind of but then um, the funny thing is about the neuro is it's the idea that the child leads the way because the the dynamic is that the child knows what the child sort of knows what they need and the child will this is where brazelton was what he was talking about is that the, the child is your teacher because the child is driven by nature so the child will just demand of you what it needs to develop um and what we need to do is play ever pay ever closer attention to the child so that we can learn from them and although this to an extent there's something attractive about that but the problem is we all as adults we also need to impose ourselves on children and actually i would say in the current period the problem is less that we downplay children's agency and more <laughs> that we downplay parental authority and we have a real problem with the assertion of parental authority or adult authority, actually. And if you, you know, if you look at the institutions in which children um, are, are in schools, for example, the big problem is authority uh, and the acceptance of authority and the exercise of authority in a meaningful way. So what often ends up is you end up with discipline, but without there really being authority undermining that. So you end up with disciplinary techniques expanding and expanding so schools don't look like child-centered places and they don't look like a kind of authority free free-for-all they look like incredibly regimented places now you know the ones in england anyway you know all the kids are in school uniforms they're wearing blazers tiny jackets you know they're encouraged to sit in silence and it's quite regimented but it's it's hollow techniques of, of the sort of management of children's behavior rather than a meaningful authority of adults over children and i think that goes at, goes into the home as well where as parents 
I mean, I certainly found it, you know, raising my children, the thing that struck me as the most different from what I remember of being a child is that children now do not fear adults. Oh, that sounds like that's a good thing. I think it's incredibly difficult because I used to find where my children's friends would come around and they wouldn't even notice that you're an adult. Their spontaneous reaction to adults is that you're just another child or a kind of annoying voice rather than somebody that's, that is the person you listen to in the room. And I think it's it makes it incredibly difficult. And I always just think, God, it must be so difficult in schools because the adult has to prove their authority on a minute by minute basis, rather than it being assumed because that's culturally supported. And so, you know, as a child, I remember always being scared of other people's fathers, not terrified, but just, you know, if they told you what to do, you would do it. And, and their mothers as well as it happened. There's no way that any of my friends would ever have defied somebody else's mother or father. Um, and it's not that they were particularly authoritarian. These are in the seventies, they're kind of, you know, pretty relaxed parents. Um, but now, you know, it's so difficult is that sort of daily need to reassert authority, but always using techniques rather than just being able to just say, I am an adult, you are a child and therefore what I say goes. And I, I, no, I think that's, it's become inadmissible to say that you're concerned about authority because <laughs> people assume that therefore you're an authoritarian, you want children whacked with sticks and, you know, them not to express themselves. And I don't think that's, that, that isn't to me what I want, but I do think that there's this kind of minute by minute need for negotiation, like a proper tussle between equals is, is unlivable. Um, and I can see it in schools. I mean, in the schools that my uh, kids are in, you know, that's what teachers say is it's just very, very difficult to, just run daily education because mm -hmm. you're continually having to solve the discipline problem. Well, no, I, and I don't, I don't, um, yeah, I think when I was saying that it takes away their sense of agency, I was thinking more that about the blanket prescriptions, you know, that mm -hmm. if you just do X, Y, Z, then your child will never cry. Right. Like mm -hmm. that's something that Sears claims. Like if you just do all of these rules and your child will never cry. Well, that is, mm -hmm. that is taking away the child's sense of agency. So it's so these very conflicting messages, mm -hmm. right? Because on the one hand, it's like, well, if you just do these things, you're shaping your child in a particular way. But then on the other hand, mm -hmm. the other message is, like you said, you have to learn from the child and then it's the authority and the leadership in the family is given over to the child, which frankly is a huge amount of responsibility for yeah. a child. And I think like in, you know, in any human group situation, right, if there's, a, if there's a sense that there's nobody in charge, somebody will step up. And mm -hmm. children don't have, uh, particularly if there are certain personality types, they don't have a problem stepping up and becoming mm -hmm. that, that sort of authority. Um, so there's all these sort of, I think, conflicting messages uh, for parents. So, so if you do these things and your child still cries, then you feel like you're doing them wrong. But mm. what you're not considering is that, well, maybe my child has this, for whatever reason, they just need to cry and I just need to be okay with it and just manage it until they get through yeah. this phase. Well, if you look at where we tend to get to with that, so our explanation for why children are actually individual you know, so why you know, this child cries when I've done all of this, followed all these rules, tends to be to pathologize the child. Right. So we then say, oh, this child is hypersensitive, or this child is, has ADHD, or this child has whatever disorder is the latest one, or is, is an anxious child, or, uh, you know, angel child, all these kind of different terms for 
um, a sense that children are individual. So rather than just saying, oh, you know, they are, they were a terrible baby, <laughs> you know, which is what people used to say, you know, that was a, he was a, he was a real bugger. That was a kind of British sort of thing you'd say about a child, you know, it's, he's a, or he was always really stroppy or she was very, very good. You know, now we're not supposed to say that children are good, you know, we're certainly not supposed to say that they are, you know, bad, <laughs> but there's a sense that, you know, there were sorts of things that made life a bit easier because it was very accepting that, you know, in a family of four, one child would be the really annoying one. One would be the angel. One would be the, I don't know, you know, and then it, it, obviously these things became constraints probably as you move into adulthood, but it kind of makes family life more livable because otherwise you, you're trying to explain human individuality rather than just accepting it as a fact. That's the funny thing, isn't it? Because although we're, we are prone to these sort of subtle disciplinary techniques of behavior management like pasta jars and kind of baby whispering and all of this in the absence of authority we also we don't really want children to all be the same we actually really we highly value individuality and we all think our children are special and so we're not really good at seeing children as a group so when we so one of the reasons that neuroparenting i think is makes life really difficult for new mums is because Neuroparenting tells you that your child is unique and your baby requires this incredibly intimate individual care. And then, of course, your child at a certain point will be going to daycare or nursery or school. And you think, but they're not going to get that. How can they get that in a room of 30? That's impossible. So this must be, I'm the gold standard of care, this one-on-one, -on -one very attentive care. So anything else must be substandard. And so it becomes very difficult for women to go back to work uh, guilt-free and it also becomes quite difficult for people to accept that their child will be treated as part of a group which mm -hmm. is why you end up as teachers with parents coming to you and saying well you know uh, I think it was very unfair that my child got kept in after class because all the other children were talking but my child wasn't because they said they weren't <laughs> you know we have this all the time you know our children have this really unfair and you think well that is kind of life as a child life feels unfair because you are being treated as a group a lot of the time you know the whole class may well be kept in for a detention or whatever or punished because the teacher can't distinguish and there's a con you know dynamics going on there um and that's well, part of the way in which discipline takes place you know so yeah. but we sort of you know the parents come in and lobby on behalf of the individual child and it doesn't work in that group context yeah yeah it's interesting because even in Montessori so we don't do rewards and punishments in Montessori education which by the way goes it starts at birth and goes through high school so we wouldn't do things like hold you know keep a class in and that kind of thing and, and the and the classrooms are multi-age so it's it's considered mm -hmm. a, a learning community like you're part yeah. of a, a community there and we can make individualized accommodations. It's a very personalized sort of learning um, system. But at the same time, you know, there are still rules of the of the community in order for the community to. And a lot of times, uh, the children they're they're part of putting those rules into place. Um, if they're if they're really young, maybe not so much. But there's a you know there's um there's sort of an understanding about how everything functions. You know, we don't have. Uh, we only have one of every material, you know, that kind of thing. So you have to wait your turn, these kinds of things. And so, um, but we would still have parents who would want even more accommodations mm -hmm. made. And then, you know, our thinking is, well, part of the education in Montessori is that the children are to learn how to be part of a community. Mm -hmm. And 
in making all kinds of special accommodations. I mean, we would, you know, for instance, uh, I had a parent who took his child out of the school because at one point, because he just said, I, my, I can't get my daughter here on time. So she needs to, this accommodation needs to be made for her. And, you know, and I was like, well, I, I get what you're saying, you know, but it's extremely disruptive to the rest of the mm-hmm. class to have a child come in an hour into the work cycle. You know, the class is kind of in a flow and it's just extremely disruptive. And so he took mm-hmm. his child out of the school and I thought, well, I mean, your child's only four. What, how are we, <laughs> how is she going to learn that, you know, there are, there are, Clocks. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not just <laughs> who's an individual, but it's, you know, there's also, um, you know, society, yeah. you know, as well, yeah. right? So I, I can't just drive up onto the sidewalk because I'm annoyed that there's traffic, yeah. right? I mean, there are, there are laws and things and, you know, ways of, of behaving within society. Mm-hmm. Um, so even, even in Montessori, we, yeah. Yeah. My son went to a, a, a nursery that, that wasn't a Montessori nursery as such, but they did do Montessori things. So they had the, the wooden blocks in them but he would never go inside to do them. He hated going upstairs for the Montessori sessions. So oh, they really? used to just have to leave him outside to play because he just refused to go. This is at the age of three or four. Um, hated putting triangles into triangle shapes <laughs> and whatever it was they were doing. And you know, learning to count had no interest in numbers. And so they just described him as a character. Oh, he's a character. Whenever they used to go and pick him up, he said, oh, he is a real character, which actually I think meant that he's extremely difficult and he's really, he's difficult for us to deal with. But they did. They just, they just used to let him carry on playing where he wanted to play, which was in the playground. Well, not every, I mean, you know, so yeah, like you said, it wasn't a Montessori. They, a lot of times people will use the materials as a way to teach academic subjects. And that's a sort of unfortunate because the way that we do it in Montessori, it's like for the children, it's, it doesn't feel like, well, now I'm doing academics and now I'm doing play. For them, it's yeah. all just part of the play. Yeah. 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 But it's, it's very interesting. So there is something, you know, the thing I haven't really resolved is what is the place of expert knowledge about child development, which I think there is such a thing. You know, and I think it's, you know, it has grown and it's developed in the 20th and 21st century. It's a really great thing. Um, yeah, I have a couple of thoughts about that because I think that is a good, that is the next question right? It's, I think that taking a critical look at the way parenting experts are portraying themselves and how parents view them, and also how parenting experts are using scientific information. You know, that's all, that does need a critical look. But that next question, I think, is a really important one. And I think that, you know, for instance, I mean, just looking at neuroscience, right, we do, there are some really valuable things that we know now in neuroscience that we have a much better understanding of, you know, for instance, what sleep does for the brain. You know, my feeling around that is that information doesn't tell you whether or not you co-sleep or put your child in a separate room or, you know, all that information is for parents is just to know sleep is important Generally, we know we need this many hours of sleep. Children at this age need this many hours of sleep, you know, that type of thing. Whether or not you co-sleep is really up to you. And so then Mm -hmm. the question is not whether or not you're co-sleeping. That's actually not a good question. The question is, is everybody sleeping? Mm -hmm. And that not just your child, but also the adults who are responsible for taking care of the child. So it's, it's not just about the needs of the child. It's about the needs then of the family system, right? Yeah. So it's that idea too that 
if you don't get enough sleep as the adult, that you're, you're not going to be able to be a very good parent. Um, you're going to have a hard time at work or you're going to have a hard time getting through your day. You're going to, you know, but sleep's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it's a continual thing where I do think authority and acceptance of adult needs is really important here that the inner family, the needs of the adults to have uninterrupted sleep and to maybe have an ev- have evenings to themselves is actually a really important it's a, it was a it was a cultural norm and i think that was that has been really undermined in a really unhelpful way where i mean a number the, the way in which sleeplessness has become the characteristic of parenthood i think is really quite extraordinary because I, I don't think that was the case it's certainly beyond infancy when babies are still feeding in the night. There was an acceptance that you were moving to moving, trying to move the baby towards an adult style of sleep, which is to not wake up twice a night. Um, whereas I think yeah, the sort of child centered view, I think was really, uh, really, really unhelpful to families where, you know, at the end of the day, you have, when you find a solution to your child, not staying asleep, it's like, oh my goodness, thank goodness, I've got, I felt like I had permission to do that. And I can remember with, you know, my first baby, still luckily still having the kind of cultural norms in place from both sides of my family and both sets of grandparents, that it was okay to leave them to cry for a little bit and they would learn to settle. And the you know your expectation should be that you can have you can go out and leave your child with a babysitter for example or with a grandparent and that people can sleep and that you know the the sort of child-centered so-called so-called child-centered version of parenting is this idea that somehow we will have to live on children's time for all the way through childhood which it was just I mean, it just wasn't the way, it's not the way in which children have ever been raised. Uh, and certainly not in a kind of post-enlightenment culture in Western Europe was the idea that you sort of civilised the child by bringing them within adult norms. And I think, right. you know, we did bent the stick far too far the other way in a way that is just really deleterious to a comfortable family living and and to, yeah, to children and to adults. But, um, I th- you know, and then I suppose it's interesting because the response to that real problem that's then created, which is a, a families where no sleep happens, um, is books and experts and new frameworks, often which are repeats of very old ways of sleep training. But of course, they then become fraught with arguments about them, and then the claims that cortisol is released by a crying baby's brain, and this is, you know, causing brain damage and um and then of course it becomes very very difficult for parents to hold the line and to do that thing where you have to just hold your nerve and act against your instincts when your child is crying for just beyond the four minutes where you're happy to leave them to cry and you've got to hold your nerve and then you will find that probably they'll stop crying at six minutes but you won't know that unless you go to six minutes and um and i can remember i've got those times in my head because i do remember that looking at a watch and thinking okay we'll give it another minute and then they fall asleep and you just it's just the most brilliant thing where they start to sleep because they're happy and you're um rested um, right but right. the the kind of authority issue sort of kicks in at every point really of, of all the basics of childcare. um and and then and again think, it becomes a thing of a you know well 
as I'm making the sacrifice to not get sleep yeah. as a parent, yeah. right? So then it becomes again, but then, but, but there's a flip side to that, even that mm-hmm. sort of argument, which is, well, if I'm, if, if I'm actually um, helping my baby to sleep by letting them cry and get to a point where they can settle themselves, mm-hmm. that's a sacrifice that I'm making because instead of uh, satiating my need to not feel uncomfortable, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> right? So there's always- No, that's right. No, I think it's interesting because I was reading, a, there's a book called Acton Baby, which I'm just looking at by Z- Sarah Zaske, who's an American woman who you know, lived in Germany. And she drew this out quite nicely because she was talking about the greater freedom that young children have in Germany. And it looks normal for children to cycle to school at a, you know, really five or six years old, seven and eight, to go out and play in the local park. And she asked another mo- a German mother, but don't you worry about them and the mother said well of course I do but I have to suppress that because I know that it's more important for them that they learn how to negotiate the public world than it is for me to feel happy and comfortable all the time and I think that's but what that relies on is a cultural sanctioning of independence right so he doesn't feel that if she lets her children out to play or gets them to walk to school that somebody else is going to call social services or come and you know attack her for for doing that um and so which i think is the culture in other places unfortunately well obviously in the us uh, but also over here as well to quite a large extent where you you don't really see very many children out anymore by themselves and so it becomes you're the, the abnormal one for doing the thing that actually is really important yeah exactly yeah it's so interesting what that what the german mom had to say because I also think it's important for us as parents, we do have to practice ourselves. It's not just for our children, but we also have to practice being away from our children and figuring out how to manage that anxiety, right? Because I think about now, I have, my son is going to be 15 this summer and we talk a lot about, uh, you know, how he's going to be leaving home soon Mm -hmm. and you know, I'm not a, a hovering parent by any means, right? But the idea that he's going to leave home, mm-hmm. I, I feel a tremendous amount of anxiety because for some reason it just feels better knowing that he's in the in the house. But if he's yeah. if he's going to he's going to live someplace else, so so we do things like well, you know, we'll send the children to stay with relatives for a mm-hmm. week or something like that, and I'm always really anxious when they leave and then when they're gone, then I'm, I settle in and I'm okay. I have to practice those things. Mm-hmm, he has mm-hmm. to practice being away from me and being in the world away from me. I have to practice being away from him. Yeah. I don't think that's something yeah. we've ever, we ever talk about. Well, this is the interesting thing about attachment uh, and for all the talk of attachment where it looks like it's uh, something that the child does to the adult. And actually I think it's talked about so much actually because of the reverse which is that we're so needy for the validation that our children loving us gives us that we're really not very good at then being adults who are much more controlled in our responses to our children, where we don't just want to love them all the time. We also realize that sometimes you don't show your love. Sometimes you actually withhold it. And, you know, sometimes you place not so much conditions on it, but you, you know, you kind of, 
you need to just have that a little bit more control over it. You know, you can't just be cuddling them and doing the things you want to all the time. Yeah, lots of the time you can, but sometimes you will have to do the harder thing, which is to not just express yourself through your, to your children. And um, that's really hard. And it's really as they get older that you realise how much of that has to go on where... Because actually it's very easy for us, I think. Most adults now, we're of a generation where actually expressing yourself is not the difficult thing. Whereas maybe for our parents and grandparents, expressing yourself was the counterintuitive thing. Whereas for us, that's all quite easy. It's the other thing of holding your nerve and you know, not saying something in order for them to have the headspace to actually figure stuff out for themselves. All those kinds of things, which because we're so intimately involved in them, in a way that I don't think previous gener generations have been. You know, we're very intimately involved in their emotional states, which comes from, you know, babyhood onwards. And I think there is a whole generation of parents now who that is our experience of parenting is, is, is having been feeling that your child is totally knowable. And of yeah. course, when they become teenagers, they cease to become knowable in that kind of way, because otherwise they're just going to be not really a, a proper person so and that can be really hard to uh, uh re understand because you can freak out by that and you can think well if, if I, I don't know them then anything is possible maybe they're this totally different person maybe i know nothing um and i think it's uh, it's a really i mean to me it's interesting i've got a 16 year old and a 13 year old and i find it really interesting this stage because it's um it's no less challenging or intensive it's lots of it's easier in so many ways but there's a whole other level of um you know kind of reworking the intergenerational relationship in a way that you're you know you're aware of what of your perception of what you were like as a teenager and your relationships with your parents and that kind of thing and you're aware that it's not the same but you don't really know why and you know it's, it's, it's an incredibly creative uh, and interesting thing if as long as you can approach it in a relatively anxiety free way and um you know th there is something really enriching about these relationships yeah um, but you kind of need to be able to do it not in isolation you need to be you need to have other people who are doing similar things and that you're talking to maybe not reading Alfie Cohn and you know all the kind of expert books about managing teenage behavior or about brains and all of that um and actually seeing your child as the thing that they're changing into which is a person out there in the world who as we you know we don't think i don't know i don't think we conceive of ourselves as primarily um an outshoot of our parents right uh, you know you experience yourself fully as a full adult person in the world so it's trying to sort of realize that that's what your own child is um but that's that's the reward of it isn't it that should be the reward of it well and it's, it's interesting what you're talking what you're talking about is uh self-differentiation mm -hmm. uh, and that that's actually the um when i was trained as a as a family systems therapist that was my framework is bowen's idea of self-differentiation that you mm -hmm you know your thoughts and feelings from those of others. And when we are so involved, it's so easy to blur those lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, how can we, I mean, there, there are ways that we can help our children. We can guide, we can be there for guidance, but we're not imposing our thoughts and feelings onto them. Mm -hmm. And I think a, a lot of the parenting advice now seems to be very much, um, indirectly fostering enmeshment, which is something mm -hmm. that in my training, when people come to you, it's because 
they're hearing the thoughts and feelings of others, their parents or other people, and they have right. to self-differentiate. They have to figure out who they are. I mean, that's a yeah. whole area of therapy, yeah. Yeah. right? And so, and a lot of these parenting techniques with these, again, blanket uh, prescriptions that don't, don't take into consideration context and everything else, are, they're also um, fostering this, this enmeshment. And so now we have parents basically going away to college with their children and, and that sort of thing, you know, always, always being there. Ch children can't make decisions without getting the advice from their parents. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's not the, it's not, you know, again, it's not the parent's fault. I think it's going back to this information that has been crafted for them and uh, getting it from these parenting experts and, and the information being used, I think, in a lot of ways, very irresponsibly by some of the parenting experts. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no way that you should talk about uh, putting on your child's backpack and then flash a picture of Bruce Perry's uh, brains of the, <laughs> you know, uh, really small brain with the normally normal developing brain without talking about what happened to that particular child who had the abnormal brain. Like, you can, I just, knows. yeah, it's right, which yeah. nobody knows, which he doesn't even talk about in his study. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the irony is that it's neuroparenting, but it's, it's not even portraying the information correctly. And it's not giving just, you know, like, I, again, sleep being the example, like, here's what we know. Mm -hmm. So now you make the decision about yeah. what it is that you're going to do. Yeah. And also the, um, I mean, this is what's interesting with, so the neuroparenting tends to be very intensively focused on in the, you know, naught to three. And then there's not really much said about three to 13. And then suddenly we become, the brain suddenly is kicks into gear again, apparently. And then it's all the talk now is of the adolescent brain. Right. And the accommodations that need to be made towards it. And so we have schools in the UK that are not starting lessons until 10, 11 o'clock, sometimes later uh, in the morning, because they think that any earlier is not suited to, to adolescent brains. And you think, my goodness, that's, uh, that's quite a thing. Because <laughs> why... To what you know, how much more accommodation will you make? And people are also talking about you know, driving tests, for example, not to, to stagger the kind of freedom that you might get from driving and making it uh, neuro related to what brain development is like. But of course, that extends adolescence into the early 20s because they say, Oh, the brain's not fully developed until 24, 25, 26, 27, 28. And suddenly you have these, the, the adolescent state becomes pathologized as kind of abnormal brain development. And then that's then extended into the 20s as well. So, you know, you think, well, what, what's, what's the, all the pleasures of independence and growing up, which are a major motivator for most teenagers. Teenagers don't want to stay babies. They want to become adults. But you're removing all of those goals and clear, quite clear, clear goalposts of like learning to drive or leaving school or those kinds of things and um, making the whole thing so flabby and, um, and continually drawing children back towards the parents or adults, in fact, drawing them back towards their parents all the time in this very codependent kind of way, which, well, it, you just, it's hard to imagine how society can function in that kind of way because you're really then saying that you're not really going to have an adult cadre of people until the age of 30. Right. And that's, <laughs> well, yeah, so, right. Well, I think we're all living longer, but even so, 30 years, 30 years of um, childhood is, is a very disturbing prospect yeah, as a parent, I would say. That's a long time. <laughs> 
I will say though that the the later start times for for high school, I do think that that's a really good thing. I think that's where research can be applied because a lot of times you hear the argument like that parents will say, well, I can't take my child to school because I have to go to work. So everything is, is on their mm -hmm. sort of schedule. But that, you know, to me, then we need to have the question of like, well, I, why can't your child take the bus? They're adolescents. Why are you driving them to school? Yeah. Given what we do know about sleep, I think that, that that's a good sort of thing. But when the counter argument is no, because I need to drive my child or they need to be, you know, then like, well, okay. So there are accommodations and then there's infantilizing i don't know you know it's like quite an odd, yeah but it's quite an odd thing isn't it to see teenagers as being biologically almost like a different species to us i mean we're, we've had this this has happened over quite a long period i suppose where you know talking of hormones and all the kind of we everybody also knows and te my, my my kids have this as one of their modules that they study in um in history is the con social construction of the teenager yeah. So we also know that this kind of version of the adolescent is a is new. Uh, it's a recent development, even to think that that's what might be going on. And although culturally and historically there has been a long, you know, very long recognition that teenagers can be jerks and <laughs> and that you know that that young people in those years can you know maybe take some risks or, or whatever it might be, and they may be very prone to the influence of their peer group and that kind of thing. But the idea that then you would sort of talk about them as being biologically distinct from uh, the adults is, I, 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 I find it difficult to see why that would be helpful, really, given that generations of teenagers have also gone through standard school days and they've just done what they're able to do. You know, whether they could do better by getting up at 11, I don't know. But what, what are you hoping to, and what is the optimal point? Yeah. Are you that they'll, well, they'll do even I, better, they'll be even cleverer, they'll be, uh, they, yeah, no, what to is me, it? They're going to be even that's more not, for a society. Yeah, no, that, that to me, no, I'm actually, this is my bias. I'm thinking back on my own experience as a teenager where I could not fall asleep before one in the morning. And then I had to get mm -hmm. up for a 7.35 a.m. class. And <laughs> I would be so exhausted when I came home. And then my mother just had these, her own beliefs around mm -hmm sleep. And one of them was that if you're a napper, you're lazy. And mm -hmm. I would be dying for a nap because <laughs> I would, I just lacked sleep and she just, she would not let me take a nap. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, these are, these are like the kinds of things that, that happen. Right. I mean, yeah. so it's, but, so I think, you know, it would have helped my mom if she'd had some information about mm -hmm. why, cause she couldn't figure out why are you, cause she couldn't remember her own experience but I just remember thinking do I have insomnia I don't I cannot go to sleep mm -hmm. um, and it was primarily the last two years of uh, high school so 11th and 12th grade but it was painful those were painful years because I was so sleep deprived <laughs> simply because of the schedule <laughs> that's my own bias that's why I'm like I think we could uh, change those <laughs> the yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think I mean, it's, it's good to be open-minded about stuff and I wouldn't sort of, um, but I think that the, yeah, there's so much talked about at the moment over here about the teenage brain, which I, yeah. I, I don't think it's helpful for teenagers actually, because um, I really worry about them seeing themselves as brain determined. Um, well, that's, you know, that's and, a really good point. I think too, because with all of this talk actually about the fragility of the brain and it being set at certain points and everything else, I, yeah. I think another unintended consequence that isn't talked about is that we are actually sending messages to adults now who maybe didn't have optimal parenting or, you know, um, 
childhoods, so their parents weren't engaging in optimal parenting practices, you're basically telling them that they're damaged in some way. You know, if you didn't get your 30,000 words, um, if maybe you don't, you know, you, you don't really get along with your mom. So now you're severe, you know, your attachment is all messed up and now you'll never have a, a real relationship or, you know, I mean, it, we, there's also these other messages that we, mm. that we send to people now. And that also, I think, robs them of their sense of agency in some way, because it can, it can send the message that you're damaged yeah. and, um, and there's nothing you can do about it because yeah. your brain is set and it was set at three. So <laughs> Yeah. And that builds on a very long, relatively long history of parental determinism. So that pre-exists talk of the brain. So, you know, the kind of the parental determinism of psycho psychoanalysis, for example, is right. along with the 20th century. And, um, and yes, I think you can say that it's, although there might be certain insights contained within it, you wouldn't want it to become the only explanation for adult personality because at a certain point, an adult is in control of much of what they do and maybe not everything that they do but much of what they do and but of course that's a subjective perception isn't it you're only in control of things if you think you're in control of things that's right and the problem is is the messages we're giving out to people at the moment is that they are not in control and we don't expect them to be able to be in control and i you know that it, well you just hear these things from from schools where you know, I know my kids have said about uh, you know, kids, some children being given license to walk out of lessons whenever they feel like it because they have anger issues. Those children are allowed to then leave, disrupt a class and leave the class. Um, and you think, God, how does that help a child to be labelled and to self-label as a child with anger issues or to be a child who sees themselves, understands themselves, themselves to be anxious? And it's not that they don't experience anxiety and that we all experience it in different shades, but certainly in the last few years I've found of undergraduate teaching, um, there's been a marked shift from what used so that we, when we have a new intake of, intake of students, we would, for the, for the students that had additional needs or, you know, sort of special needs, if you like, or um, that need to be given special consideration on the grounds of some kind of disability, it used to be dyslexia. And now you don't really hear much about dyslexia. It tends to be anxiety. Mm. Um, and something's happened. I mean, we're really noticing this in, in universities where it's not every student and it probably isn't the majority of students, but there is a very large number of students who clearly really struggle with the normal demands of, of university life or adult life. Um, and they, you can kind of, you can feel the drive to see themselves as, as special not because they want to be it's not an egotistical thing it's uh it's a, it's a kind of alienation from their sense that everybody experiences this stuff and so they feel that they are particularly anxious or they're particularly bad at handling things or they're particularly it's a really heightened sense of individuality and i think that's that's very difficult and it, it doesn't work for people and it there's something about this generation where we tell them this all the time. We say, oh, well, your generation are experiencing particular pressures. You know, there is Donald Trump in the White House. There's North Korea. Well, maybe that's okay now. Um, there's Brexit. There's a housing market that doesn't, doesn't do you any favours. There's unpaid internships. And we continue to tell them that they have it worse than other generations. And so that kind of isolates them 
from human experience of what's gone before and it's really really unhelpful i think and they kind of they sort of flounder around really trying to find explanations for their feelings which are real but are left with explanations that tend to be medicalized um, and that actually often requires them to go and talk to an individual expert adult rather than dealing with things amongst their friendship group and just you know doing distraction activities or whatever um when is life not filled with with difficult things so it's almost as if we we set ourselves up for expecting some sort of utopia some sort of very smooth everything you know everything is positive nothing negative or something i mean that's just i mean life has always been difficult i mean given everything we've talked about isn't don't you think it's just amazing that we have managed to sustain as a species for the last 200 something years <laughs> well, it would just seem like wow we really can't handle anything can we but well on the other way around is, uh, see i i was whenever i look to anthropology or history i always just think well of course we do how else would we be here of course we do and then that's that's a very it's the most reassuring thing i've always found actually is yeah. as a parent and as an academic is to is to just look at human variety and that's what i tried to do in the book where i've sort of drawn on some anthropological work and um and looking at historical comparisons and it's immediately and you know this just even amongst you know just normal people find it fun funny and reassuring to know that they're even just to talk about say their parents what their parents used to do when they were raising them compared to what they do and it's not always got this critical dynamic it's often got this there's a sort of quite a positive dialogue that goes on there in britain the classic thing is of you know, talking about your parents leaving you outside the pub in the car with a packet of crisps um, while they went in the pub and had an evening with their friends <laughs> and loads of british adults talk about this as being you know the, the standard thing is things that were normal in the 1970s right <laughs> and um you know and you know, or my mum used to place me in the pram at the end of the garden for my nap every day um and regardless she couldn't hear that i was crying that was the point and so and it isn't really critical it's actually quite a friendly warm dialogue that that is that serves a purpose of sort of um slightly diminishing the contemporary anxieties for most people i think um, yeah thankfully thankfully and the more that sort of stuff comes through the more helpful it can be but it kind of requires the older generation to hold their nerve and not to acquiesce not to say well actually no we were really bad and if only we'd known we wouldn't have done it they need to sort of say well the reason we did it was because i needed to get my sleep or i needed to get the housework done and that's why you needed to sleep at the end of the garden or you know or we used to like going in the pub and we didn't want to smoke around you so we left you in the car <laughs> rather than bring you you weren't allowed in the pub children weren't allowed in pubs um because it was an adult space and it was good because of this or whatever so you sort of um there was that the awareness that things have been done differently can be a really positive creative one actually that's that's very reassuring for people yeah um, but that's it's never the expert view the expert view is very much based in the present or the future i think and um and this kind of external knowledge or authority that isn't experiential um and it's generally unhelpful because of that yeah yeah it's interesting i mean i do um i have a small practice of with some parents where i do parenting i call it parenting consulting but it's not to tell them how to parent their children it's actually more i just it's more about what they need to know about development so they can make their own choices and um I can help them workshop what choices they want to make, but ultimately it's more like just 
a lot of it is easing their anxiety. That's really what most of it is. It's like, no, that's not true. You don't, it's, if you do that, X, Y, Z is not going to happen. We can't Mm -hmm. because, you know, ultimately we, I think this is the other thing is that with the neuroparenting and everything else, it's this deterministic view that somehow these inputs uh, occur and then these outputs will occur and voila, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's just, it just doesn't work like that, that we don't have that kind of certainty. Uh, And I think that we as um, uh, parents need to be able to accept that so that we can also pass that on to our children, right? So that they don't expect certainty. Uh, And, um, and that will enable all of us to manage life as it occurs, I think, you know, more effectively. Yeah. But the, the need for certainty is really, it's high and it needs to, we need to just do away with it really because nothing is certain. And I, and I feel so badly for parents when, when they said, you know, I did everything in my child and, you know, ended up being an addict of some sort or this or that, Mm -hmm. where did I go wrong? And it's, you know, really, is that, is that, I I mean, it it does seem though that we are living in a a specifically uncertain age where the old cultural norms have fallen away. So they're just the rule, the rules of doing things and, the sources of authority you know so the old ideas of oh you mustn't spoil a child for example you mustn't spoil them by going to them too much when they cry or too quickly and and although it's difficult to know because when you look at the history obviously not everybody followed those rules right people bent them and they you know people who wanted to cuddle their babies more just cuddled them more and they probably some of them might have felt guilty when they did so I mean who knows but they and there were certainly were more singular dominant voices at different historical periods who would define a decade whereas now you have this cacophony of of competing voices yes but i suppose they do all tend to coalesce around the idea that the child is the most important person in the equation yeah and that somehow that you can never do too much and that even when you're doing less you're actually doing it for the child whereas I think I think of a family as, as something that's is a kind of nest of all kinds of needs and they have to somehow work themselves out together and you can't put one of them continually above all else um, all the way through because it just doesn't really work it doesn't work it doesn't work no. and I suppose culturally the dominant um, trope has been the idea that of this kind of nominal child-centeredness which I don't think is actually child-centered in the sense that I don't think it's good for children right but it looks like a, an unarguable thing because the child is so elevated and sentimentalized that when things are child-centered that just seems to mean that they're good and it becomes quite difficult to question them but um I think you know very often things that are said to be child-centered are actually really rubbish for children and they don't do us any favors and they certainly don't make family life something that's very livable or comfortable for people right because um, really it should be the basis on which you then do other stuff shouldn't it that should be the point of family life it, it's it's a foundation and then you're you then do other things whereas it's become the sort of location of all so much meaning for people that it can't really take that that strain really it's just not it's too un, it's too uncertain and it's too open-ended for it to bear that that kind of pressure i think yeah i i uh in some of my writings i talk about how the it's the children are not the foundation of families 
Um, mm-hmm. That actually it's the adult relationships that are the foundation of families, because even if that family transforms and th- those adults divorce or they mm-hmm. separate or whatever, that relationship maintains a semblance of family, even though it's a, in a different form. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But putting the, making the children as the foundation of the family, you know, you'll hear parents say this, oh, well, we have children. So now we're a family. And as if, okay, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then all the child centered parenting perspectives that you're talking about, it makes, again, it puts too much responsibility on the children. Mm. Just way too Mm. much. And children change. That's that's the strange thing about it is how can you, um, of all the things to pin your need for rules and certainty to, a child is the least good thing to pin it to because they're changing every moment of every day. That's right. It just increases that uncertainty. Yeah. So if you're trying to follow them, when you really are in in a mess because they, they're both, changing all the time because of they are growing yeah and they're also so susceptible to everything else that you're not in control of everything else in their lives their peer group the way the school is you know things that can happen that throw them off kilter or you know organic problems in their in their development or all kinds of things that you you know there's an illusion of control which um is is very very unhelpful because it's untrue essentially untrue isn't it um, yeah, and I think um, so. Yeah. In, in Montessori, and we'll 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 wrap up here soon because I know I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, uh, but in Montessori, we talk about we have a phrase called "follow" that that says "follow the child." But what we mm-hmm. what we mean by that in Montessori is not what you're talking about. So, uh, in the sense that you're observing children to see what their needs are, what their what as if you're a teacher, what their next work will be. Uh, oh, I, I see they're showing an interest in this, or I'm going to show them this, or they're showing an interest in this, so I need to show them this first, or, you know, whatever. It, it, it's not a free-for-all. Like, I'm going to follow whatever it is the child wants to do in the sense of I'm, I now want to break this work or toss it across the room or uh, go bonk my friend over the head with it or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not about permissiveness. Mm-hmm. It's... It's really observing to see the change in, the ch- in each child too, so that you, you are observing them so that you can see when the changes are happening. Because those changes can be difficult for parents, particularly because just when you think you know, mm-hmm. this, is, this is how I'm going to handle this, and then your child changes, and now, and now you're like, well, now what do I do? <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's really encouraging that kind of observation to, to, to give you some, actually a, a little bit of a a little bit of an emotional distance so that you're not wanting them to stay the same just so that you can feel more comfortable kind of mm-hmm. thing. But sometimes I think people can end up coming to Montessori because they, th- they think that follow the child means that my child will always be happy because they can do whatever they want. And that's just not, mm-hmm. not the case. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing though about uh, as an educator is that you've you see so many children and so presumably although you have a sense of the individual child you also must have a sense of the other stratification which is that of certain age related not simply you probably don't think about stages maybe but the um yeah but certain trajectories that will be the children will work through and um and I suppose in a way that's what families don't have. Maybe you do when you've had two or three or four children. Certainly with your child, your first child, you, you really don't know. It is a path untrodden. And um, 
that can be quite disorienting because of that but that's when you need people like you to offer the reassuring voice which is or the midwife or the health visitor or your parents or friends to say oh yeah it's just I mean what a brilliant thing it's just a phase I always think that's the most helpful thing and when parents when they ask parents you know what's the most useful advice you've been given they often will say it's just a phase that's a really such a useful enduring thing to know of course it's true <laughs> and that, but it gets you through the point where you don't really know you don't really understand what's going on in that moment you don't quite know how to manage it or relate to it um, and it's really really helpful and then of course usually your child surprises you because there are those points and I, I think it's fascinating in um, in the interaction between children and parents where you feel like you've just got to know this child and then they start doing something really quite different or, or slightly different, different enough for you to, it just a slight, the dynamic changes again. And then you have to, and they sometimes get very frustrated by that. Um, and you think, why are they so angry at the moment or frustrated or whatever? And then you, and then they sort of burst through into the next level of when they're young, certainly cognitive uh, ability. It just changes. And it's a, it's a brilliant thing when you witness it up close. It's, it is a really fantastic thing. And, you know, it's very, very enjoyable. But um, you've got to be able to enjoy it as this incredibly dynamic process between right. between people which is not just you and your child it's other family members and, and their peer group I mean that, that brilliant thing when your children start to go to daycare and then they come back and they do things that are, are not anything to do with your family and so I remember my son you know just suddenly one day lying on the floor with a car and moving a car around making a broom sound and thinking he's never done that before where did he where did he get that from and of course he's he's at nursery and that, that really You've, but you've got to accept that their peer group will be influential, their other caregivers will be influential, and that there's a, with the intensification of parenting, there is a tendency to see other influences other than yours as being toxic rather than um, just the way of the world and beneficial. Yeah, so you do get parents, especially very middle class parents, whose children are being cared for by more working class care workers, you know, objecting to the language that's used or accents and standard thing in Britain is um, is children start talking about water rather than water and all middle-class parents think oh no this is when my child becomes downwardly mobile and I must make sure that they say water instead of water and then of course the children realize they play on this and they love it they love your response and so many parents I know they say oh my goodness they say water and the child will just say it while looking directly at the parents because <laughs> uh, they just really noticed this thing that they hear all the time at nursery that's entirely normal gets this reaction at home and so there's all these kinds of uh, tensions that are both internal to the family and external to the family and the parents sense of place in the world and where their children are going to end up and it's uh yeah it's <laughs> it's it's hilarious really you know, all, all the things that are wrapped up in the, raising the children but um well, and it's Those. so funny because the parents are are worried, but the child, the children are so clever, you know, and they yeah. they they're just going, oh, I, I can hear the difference, and I'm seeing the reaction, ha <laughs> ha, yeah. you know, that's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, it's a brilliant thing, and I love it because I see it in other people's younger children, and then you just think, ah, they're going through the water phase, <laughs> and it's <laughs> such a thing in that London thing, I think maybe, but um, no, it's very funny. Or yeah, there's so many things like that that are just kind of cultural and class and all of those things kind of get wrapped up together 
but um, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. This it's been two hours now, so <laughs> and I could keep talking. So, but uh, but thank you so much. The book is really great, and it's one of those books where, as I was reading it, I kept shouting out loud, yes, yes, exactly. This, this needs to be talked about. So I'll put, definitely put a link in the show notes uh, for everyone right. so Thank that you. they can uh, purchase it because it's a, as I said, it's a slim read, but chock full of really substantive information. So thank you so much for all of your work. I think it's, um, I've really enjoyed all of your, your work and look forward to, to more. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much, Laura. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>